Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I just, I love John Rothson's work. Uh, I've read a ton of his books and I've recommended his books to a ton of people. He's just, he's, as I talk about in today's interview, he's just got a delightful tone and style and voice and he manages to pick the most interesting subjects and make them accessible and eye-opening. His book, Them, Adventures with Extremists, is unfortunately quite timely as he studies uh, conspiracy theorists and why they act the way they do. His book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, was turned into a delightful movie with George Clooney. His book, The Psychopath Test, also very, very good. Um, But of course, I think his best and uh, most relevant book, which is one I also carry here at The Painted Porch, is So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which looks at our online culture, why we react the way we do to people, why we gather in mobs, uh, back to the Stoics times and to the online times, why why we shame, why we bully, um, why we struggle so much with forgiveness and empathy and most of all, grace. And... John just does an incredible job in this book. Um, I know uh, Billy Bush, uh, who I've had on the podcast, um, read read it. 
uh, a number of people I know who have been sort of in the midst of these massive uh, internet sensations turn to this book. I, I tend to find people will read my first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, and then So You've Been Publicly Shamed. I think they come at a similar problem from very different perspectives. But I remember when I read So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I thought, fuck, that is a good book. I wish I had written it. But I don't think I could have or anyone could have written it as delightfully and thoughtfully as John Ronson did. And uh, I was very excited to have him on the podcast. He writes in many different publications, including The Guardian. He's made several BBC television documentaries. And he's the host of a new podcast, Things Fell Apart, which looks at the conflicts of the culture war with that same lens. So he doesn't get bogged down in who's right and who's wrong, uh, what it means. He's, he's focusing on, on how this issue came to be what it is and the mistakes that were made and the generalizations that were made and the lack of sympathy that was made and the nuance that was missed. And uh, I'm just so excited about this podcast. And I hope it can do for these interminable, uh, destructive culture wars we, we are in um, what John managed to do for the subject of online shaming, which I think we've gotten a tad bit better about. I was really excited to bring this interview. You can go to johnronson.com. You can follow him on Instagram, at johnronson. That's John with no H. Uh, you can follow him at johnronson on Twitter. If you haven't read So You've Been Publicly Shamed, you should. And you can pick it up at The Painted Porch, thepaintedporch.com, anywhere books are sold. I don't know if he reads the audiobook. I hope he does, because uh, he has a delightful accent. And uh, check it out in any and all formats and enjoy this interview with John Ronson. I think what I've always been struck by in your books, and I thought this before you wrote uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, although it sort of was the penultimate uh, example of this. I feel like in all your writing, the one theme that runs through it is you manage to find a remarkable amount of empathy or compassion, or in some cases, even understanding for, for people, either people that have screwed up, people who are batshit crazy, uh, or, you know, somewhere in between. How, where does that come from in you? Uh, get, getting older and feeling more fragile and vulnerable myself. And, uh, and the more uh, of a battering life gives you, the more you feel empathetic to, to other people. Yeah, in my earlier days, it's funny. I was I was just reading a, a conspiracy, which I like a lot. I think you oh, wrote a you. great book, but it's interesting. You talk a lot about manipulation, um, and the older I get, the more I was never into manipulation at all. I've always been like I've always found it a, something to avoid. But the older I get, the more I feel that way. And so if you're approaching somebody as a, as a, as a writer, you wanting to tell their story, uh, the opposite of manipulation, the opposite of tricking people into somehow becoming an ingredient in your preconceived agenda is curiosity and, and, and empathy. And I just found over the years that the more I leaned into that aspect of things, just the, the better it was in every way. Yeah, as I, I in that book, I, I talk about the famous Janet Malcolm sort of view of journalism that it's it's this ex inherently exploitative or uh, vicious thing because you're taking someone's life and then you're turning it into like material yeah. for what you do. And it's like in the way that a woodworker cuts down a tree and uses that tree to make something that benefits them at the expense of the tree. There mm -hmm. is an element to that in journalism and writing. 
and I, I think internet journalism compounds it. But yeah, there, there's a there's a thoughtfulness and and uh, it's not even unbiased. It, it, like I think being objective would be one thing, and you're kind of letting the people hang themselves. But even in your your stuff on on pornography, you really just try. I feel like you really just tried to understand who these people were and why what they were doing or who they were made sense to them. Yeah, and just try and try and see the world through other people's eyes. Just try and get to the to the heart of people. Which yeah doesn't mean that I'm I'm credulous. I you know I have I have beliefs. I I yeah. fall somewhere on the ideological on the political spectrum, uh, but. I I just feel well as Janet Malcolm said I can't remember the exact quote but it was something like you know every journalist knows deep down that they're a con artist yeah. um, and I think that really has to weigh heavily on us all uh, because it, we're in a you know we have a we have a, we have power when we're telling people stories so so yeah the, uh, also it's just such a great relief to tell stories where you want to be empathetic which i'll say doesn't mean that i'm that i'm uncritical or or i've lost my you know rationality or reason i think you you take all of you bring all of those things too to the thing um if somebody is doing something that hurts other people then you have to point that out and you have sure. to like, address that and and not give them an easy ride over it. But at the same time, uh, you want to try and understand what's going on inside people's heads. Yeah, I, I was reading something about Joan Didion and she and I remember reading this in one of her essays, but she was talking about how because she was little and pretty and unassuming, you know, she would get in the room with people, particularly big, powerful men who would just sort of take her for granted and and she was like, I'm not your friend, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm not here. She's like, I'm here for me. And if destroying you is good for my story, I'll do <laughs> it. Uh, and but I yeah, I just feel like in your stuff, like you're yeah, I, I, it's I, almost the opposite of that. Yeah. I'm, and I love Joan Didion. It's not like, a, you know, I'm, um, but yeah, I just think there aren't that many people, I guess, approaching it the way that I'm approaching it. Uh so, for instance, I just made this series, Things Fell Apart, which is about the history of the culture wars. And the very first thing I thought when I decided to do that was I want to make a show about the culture wars that doesn't become a part of the culture wars. And how right. do you do that? How do you, how, how is that possible? And the answer is you tell human stories. Uh, uh, and humans are nuanced and complicated and good people do stupid things and vice versa. And if you're telling, if you're honing in on a person and you're telling just a human story, then all the ideology can, can kind of take a, take a back seat and you can start thinking about the culture wars and how we got here in a, in a different way through curiosity and humor rather than getting very upset. Well, how do how does one find the balance then? Because this is something I've experienced. I think you you as well. But in, in this line of work, and then if depending on what you write about, you can find yourself in the room with people who have either done bad things or been accused of doing bad things, hmm. and then you know you sit down with them, you talk to them, uh, they tell you their story. It feels very believable. They, they, they feel like human beings, as you're saying. Hmm. Like something hit me a, a while ago. This is, again, I think a weird uh, confluence of the things I've written about and my public relations background. I realized that I've probably been in the room with like 
at least a dozen different people who have been like me too on like a national level, right? Mm-hmm. And every single one of them can tr- like told me a convincing story about how they were totally and completely innocent, right? And on a, at an individual basis, you know, again, if you're trying to be compassionate, empathetic, see someone as a human, that like on the if you're looking at it a sample size of one, it makes sense. And, and then I was like, they can't all be innocent, right? Uh, right. So how do you balance uh, empathy and compassion and not uh, being sold a bill of goods? Right. You know, in my in my case, the answer is you you keep going. My my relation, other than in particular circumstances, normally with my stories, they unfold, they twist and turn, and so if I'm if I'm with, I'm, I'm rarely with someone for an hour and I believe what they say and just move on with the story. Instead, maybe they'll say something that triggers me to think, oh, okay, I'll go off and, and ex- explore over there or have an adventure over there. So they're still in my life. They're still in the background. Sure. And I'm going off on another adventure. And then maybe six months down the line, I go back to the person and say, I've just learned this thing. And then, so, you know, you, you try and, so what you're doing is, is, is balancing empathy and curiosity with, with investigative journalism. You, the two things go hand in hand. It's, I think, a lot harder than to be, to be duped. Trust, but verify. Yeah. Yeah. And, and be curious, keep going. Like if they say something, it always surprises people when I say that I never have a, I never ask, I never have a list of questions in front of me. Yeah. Um, but it's because, you know, you have to listen. And then if you haven't got a list of questions in front of you, then you're much more likely to pick up on something that that person says in the moment that might entirely change your narrative. It might take you 180 degrees. Uh, whereas if you've got a list of questions in front of you, then you're not really listening to, to what the person's saying because you've got a safety net. Isn't that the tricky thing, though? Like, it would it would almost be easier if bad people were like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I don't care about other people, right? Like, mm-hmm. almost always, and I think this goes to Socrates. He says, uh, nobody does wrong on purpose. Everyone always has a reason. They always have an explanation. They always have, a, a almost always seem to have, and I know you talked about psychopaths too, but even them, very rarely are they like, I'm a psychopath, right? Like, well, they, well, they manage to convince you. Well, I was thinking about psychopaths while you were saying that, uh, because one thing I did learn, I learned a little tip when I, when I, when I was writing the psychopath test and I went on there on Robert Hare's course and learned about the checklist. And obviously one of the um, main items on the checklist is lack of empathy. Yeah. And I said, let me, let me tell you a story really quickly. Uh, after I finished writing the psychopath test, so this isn't in the book, I was interviewing this spy uh, this this spy who had worked for the for the Russians, um, but he was British. So I'm talking to this guy, and I noticed that he was um, not listening to any of my questions, just just monologuing at me for a long time. And I hope that this is more of a kind of conversation. We're listening to each other, which is an empathetic situation. But this guy didn't have that. So I thought. I remembered another item on the checklist, early behavior problems and various things to do with childhood. So I said to him, like, when you were, when you were a child, uh, were, were you a bully? And he sort of looked twinkle-eyed and he said, oh, yes, yes. He said, I was a, I was a terrible bully. I used to, I, I got a pile of bricks and I put them in my bag and I, ha- I hid behind the tree 
And then I'd jump out and, and hit the other kids with, with this bag. Uh, and he said, but it was always like other bullies, you know. Yeah, uh, sure. Or, that's what he said. So I said, um, I said, how did that make you feel? He said, good. And I said, uh, and looking back at it now, 60, 70 years later, how does it make you feel? And he said, uh, he said, still good. Uh, <laughs> so I said, uh, so you're not really the sort of person who feels empathy. And he said, ah, oh, you've really got to the root of it there. Uh, he said, you know, all, all, uh, he said, you know, if, if a dog dies, who I, you know, if, if my pet dog dies, I feel incredibly upset. I cry for days, but all the people who I've hurt, I, I, I just feel nothing. Uh, so, the, so if you, if you, you can um, get a psychopath to really get to the root of it. And yeah. I've had similar conversations with one or two other um, psychopaths too. Well, no, and what I mean is like when you talk to, you know, somebody who spreads misinformation or conspiracy theories, the tricky part about them is that they, it's not like, I think some people go, oh, they know deep down it's it's BS, but they don't, they believe it, right? That's the yeah. that's often the tricky, like, it, I think what's so tricky is that they are deceived by their own deceptions in a way. And so it makes it really hard as a as a person to to know kind of yeah. who and how you're dealing with someone. Well, one of the, you know, one of the questions I'm asked more than any other question is Alex Jones. Yeah. Who, I spent who you wrote about time. years ago, right? Yeah, like in the 90s. Uh, does he mean it? Does he believe it all? Or is he a showman? Yeah. And so that thing that you just said is of enormous interest to people. Do they mean it? I think because um, the thing that people hate more than almost anything else is hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. So the idea of of Alex not meaning a word of it uh, would would be worse, I think, for people than the things that he says. Uh, but I think the answer is really complicated. I think especially if you're narcissistic, meaning it and not meaning it, bullshitting people, it's, it all sort of blurs into one. You know, if you don't yes. have those ethical uh, guidelines, it just all blurs into one. Right, so, no, so, I think so, that makes it so, trickier. Yeah. It makes it trickier to tell fact from fiction with these people because they're not yeah. in one camp or the other. It's very hard because they... they, they slip from exactly from one thing to the other it's it's really hard and it's frustrating and it's why there haven't been that many really great things about QAnon yes the I thought the HBO documentary that got that found uh you know the guy I've forgotten his name what's the young guy's name the son yeah I forget but I know who you're talking about yeah yeah, I thought that was really good because that's kind of all we really do need to know. We because we want like we want something solid. Like if you're just trying to talk to conspiracy theorists about their conspiratorial beliefs, it's just like it's almost like asking someone to describe a dream. So you need something solid. And what's solid is like who is doing this? And why are they doing it? And how can you I think that that is the tricky part of our age, which is we we seem to believe that if we just get the truth out there if we if it's like if mm. i can just show you factually why you're incorrect you will change your mind and that's not how it works yeah i've, I've long ago realized that's not how it works <laughs> um so, yeah go ahead well you have to lead them to to a place where they want to come to that realization themselves or not even lead them there 
you just have to let them come to that place and yeah you just have to leave them to sober up basically or not or not so so going back to 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 sort of this journalistic approach uh, uh with empathy what i think what why it strikes me as so remarkable is that or or perhaps what makes it possible is it does seem you spend large amounts of time in person with the people you contrast that with gawker who i was writing about it's like they're doing this through the a computer screen so it's disintermediated and or it's intermediated and and as a result they're able to act like it's a video game is it is it harder for you to stick the knife in someone because you're like I just spent eight hours with them. I know they're a human being. I can't fool myself about that. To be totally honest, the the only reason why I travel and meet people is I need, for narrative, for writing, I need need the sense of a journey. Uh, Mm -hmm. I actually think, so, you know, probably the best interviewer in America is Terry Gross on Fresh Air. Yeah. And I believe that she like, never meets them. It's always done right. down the line. It's always done via ISDN. So actually, I think the answer is I would, um, things fell apart, the show I just made um, that's about to come out all over the world. Uh, I, I did that remotely. Um, and it's a great show. So, but I, uh, so for me, the reason for travel isn't to be in the room with the person. Huh. It's because I need, you know, I need a journey. I'm getting off the plane and I'm getting in, going into the hotel and then a, a funny observation and then another funny, you know, so that, that's just kind of how I write. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I just wonder how, like, I think part of what you talked about and so uh, you've been publicly shamed, what makes that possible is that we've reduced human beings to these sort of avatars or bits on a computer screen where when when you actually had to see this person or you knew them, you might not be so quick to reduce them to a caricature. You you know what? Uh, Say being publicly shamed is is the big exception to what I just said. I I couldn't have done, well, there's no way I could have done say being publicly shamed any other way. And the most emotional things that I saw were things that I saw. So one of the, so for instance, uh, Lindsay Stone, uh, she 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 uh, uh, got piled in on for making a joke about the um, silence and respect side at Arlington Cemetery in front of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Anyway, when I finally went to her house, it's funny of all the all the things that I did for that book. This is kind of my first memory, and it's not like wild, but it's but it kind of gets to the heart of it. So I go to her house. She lives in this cabin in the woods with her parents, you know, just very nice. Um, she told me that when the media doorstepped her, uh, they came out of the cabin with the dog, like with their German shepherd or whatever, and one of them was smoking. And as they were talking, they noticed the camera went down to the dog and the cigarette. They were immediately forming this narrative about them being, you know, mountain people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, so I go in there and she showed me the desk, like this little desk in the corner with her little old desktop on it, where she would sit night after night reading every comment uh, and believing every word of it because she wasn't a public figure. She had, there was, right. she had no practice. She was a carer. She, um, and just believing every word. And, I, and you had, you'd have to see that. You'd have to be in that room with her. And see her and need and and because 
if I was going to write a book about public shaming, it would have to be kind of like the Blair Witch Project. It would have to make people feel horror because you want to feel the horror of yeah. what you do to other people. Because we all think, oh, yeah, they're fine now. Like, you know, we told them about, but they're fine now. But we have no idea because we've just moved on. And one of the things I wanted to show in that book was the intense psychological trauma uh, that it does to somebody. And, you know, Lindsay Stone, like, like many people, were having suicidal thoughts. They became insomniac, agoraphobic. And, you know, this is a woman who used to uh, go to karaoke every night. And so, yes, I had to be in the room with her. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Yeah, that, that, that suicidal component has been the thing for me as, I, as I've, you know, because, because my first book and then because of some of the stuff I've, I've written, I just, people just email me. They're like, hey, you know, insert person in the middle of the headlines for this thing, their career, their life, whatever just happened. And they, they either want my advice or they, sometimes they read, uh, some of the other books, uh, like uh, Billy Bush, who I've had on the podcast, was like, you know, he read he read my first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, and he read uh, The Daily Stoic as his life imploded. And I remember talking to him. And one of the things I took out of some of those conversations is like, there's plenty of people that are going to hold this person accountable, right? Or there's going to inflict the consequences, rightly or wrongly, for for what happened. And there's almost always a deficiency of people who will just talk to or be there for that person. And I, I, I don't know. I just, I just feel like uh, yeah. if you turn away from that role and something happens, you're responsible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think things are balancing out a little bit. I, I think yeah. when I wrote Say Being Publicly Shamed, I, I described people on Twitter as being like toddlers crawling towards a gun. 
And I think things have matured quite a lot since then. We're aware it's a gun, that social media is a gun. Yeah, well, um, what I meant by that analogy, a toddler crawling towards a gun was, was just, we just, we have no idea of our own power. We have no idea of the consequences of what we're doing, uh, the power of the weapon that we are utilizing. Um, and I think things have changed now. And I think there's, there's more of, I was really encouraged. Did you, did you see the Anasali incident happen a a few? No. um, Okay. It was another dog park, um, racist moment in a dog park, some of which was captured on video. So, so yes, I do remember this. Yes. Yeah. So similar to Amy Cooper, but with some very big differences and not to go into it in too much detail, because you can just read about it if you want to. Um, there was quite a, it was gentle, but there was a sort of firm backlash against the person doing the shaming from leading progressive voices. Yes, which, which I thought was interesting. They were saying, like, "I'm not sure this is a good use of your of your platform," and they were they were arguing against the things that you know we've been arguing about for for, for well you know seven or eight years now. That you shouldn't judge somebody on a fragment of, of information and, and so on. Yeah. You know what what struck me on So You've Been Publicly Shamed when I first read it was I was roughly the same age as Jonah Berger. We had the same Jonah age. Lara. Oh, Jonah Lair. Sorry. Yeah. I, Jonah Berger is an, also an amazing writer uh, or is an amazing writer who's not gotten in trouble. So sorry to drag <laughs> him in here. Um, no, no. Jonah Lair. Uh roughly same age, same publisher, same speaking agency, sort of, uh, he he was a little bit more uh, prestigious in the circles he was in. But I just remember thinking like, not that it could happen to anyone, but that it would be so easy to go down that road. That you know what I mean? And and so I think what I took from your book was, was not just a sort of compassion, but just a because I understood it, because it was sort of it struck closer to home, I was just like, I don't, I, I, the lesson from that should not be, oh, what a piece of garbage he is. The lesson should be, you could end up in a similar situation if you are not careful. Yeah, it's funny with Jonah Lara. Um, the thing that made me a little bit paranoid was one of the things that he was accused of. Um, but never, but actually he sort of wasn't done for this, but it was, yeah. but it was like the first slap before, uh, the, the real, yeah. um, transgressions came out, um, was, uh, self-plagiarism. Yeah. That's yeah. not a thing. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, like if you tell a joke in a column in the Guardian that no one congratulates you for. And then five years later, you think of another way to use that same joke. And this time, everyone's like, that's the best joke I've ever heard. Yeah. That's a win. <laughs> so I'm like, so I'm like think, fuck, you know, are they, it, it just felt like we were on shift. When I read that, I thought, I felt like I was standing on shifting sands. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people in many, many different ways over the last few years have thought we're, sta- we're standing on shifting sands. Like no, I, that, to me, that's something to be very empathetic about, right? Because oftentimes what someone goes down very hard for, they may have just been ahead of the curve, right? And so like, I think Jonah, Jonah as someone who wrote for a lot of different media outlets and was very prodigious in his output, was sort of on the front line of now, that's what writing is. You publish in all these places, you're on all these different platforms. 
And so, of course, he was remixing and moving stuff around. It's not the same as as uh, David Brooks recycling his columns. You know, it's a different uh, it's a different oh, mode yeah. and style of writing. Well, other stuff was yeah. Well, I mean, it's been a while, but to be specific, there was fabricated quotes. That's so, the problem. Yes. Of yeah, so one of the most famous ones, but just kind of s- stupid. I mean, he he um, he quoted that very famous Bob Dylan line from "Don't Look Back," where Dylan's reading about himself in the paper, and he goes, "You know, he he, he smokes sixty a day," and Dylan like, looks up from the paper and goes, "Well, I'm glad I'm not me." And uh, Dylan uh, and Johnny Lever quotes that, but adds, "I'm glad I'm not that." Yeah. I'm glad I'm not me. I'm glad I'm not that. And so then when Michael Moynihan uh, started investigating Jonah, he said to Jonah, where did the I'm glad I'm not that come from? And Jonah said, oh, um, I had special access to extra tapes that I got from one of Dylan's managers. So just digging and digging and digging. But it's like, why? Why even write I'm glad I'm not that? <laughs> like, why even do that? Yeah. Uh, so that was the sort of, that was the kind of thing that, that he was being done. But I mean, of course, when you compare that to... When you compare that to the kind of lies that are all over the media right now, uh, then it, it seems pretty minor. But but of course, you know, there's a line in So You've Been Publicly Shamed where I say that our shameworthiness lies in the space between who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. Sure. And Jonah's space was big and that was his problem. No, and I, I also think it's interesting when we talk about cancel culture, uh, which I wanted to ask you about, is one's uh, vulnerability to being shamed also depends on how dependent you are on other people or institutions or public favor to do what you do, right? So if you write for The New Yorker and for Wired and blah, 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 and you are sort of your you're dependent on these big outlets to get your stuff out in the world. Mm. You are much more cancelable than someone who writes directly to their audience, right? Like a Joe Mm. Rogan, people have tried to attack and I don't need to get into why or whether it's deserved or not, but Joe Rogan basically only has him and Spotify, you know, Mm. between him and the audience. And so people have been frustrated by their inability to, to sort of hold him accountable. And I'm putting accountable in quotes. Um, but but I think uh, to me one lesson from all of it is like as you said to be honest and true and and not try to present yourself as something other than you are. But also it's like not depend on other people or other platforms to put your work out in the world. Yeah, and I guess that's going to happen less and less. And you know, by by the time of uh, the apocalypse, everyone will be on Substack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then does that mean that I guess that means that a true meritocracy. Happen? Is that what that means? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a strange. The, 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 the cancel culture thing is interesting because it's become this whole thing. And I, I remember actually, I said this to someone uh, who, who, who had been uh, canceled, and I said, uh, the problem is that that uh, cancel culture, like it, it exists. Most of the people who are canceled deserve to be canceled. Right. That that's the tricky part. Like it is problematic, but then well, oftentimes it's it's to get rid of uh, get rid. But oftentimes it is deserved. So it's this tricky thing of of like the difference between shaming and canceling. 
Yeah, well, one of the main problems is the phrase itself, yeah. because so many wildly disparate situations are described as part of cancel culture. Everything yeah. from Lindsay Stone, a private individual being being wildly disproportionately punished for a, for a joke that came out badly, which is kind of where, so you, you've been publicly shamed to set in that world of private yeah. people being disproportionately punished. Then you go to the middle and you've got, like agent provocateur newspaper columnists uh, and the pushback can be ferocious and can frighten people into silence but there's also the fact that when you put yourself out in the public eye you should be held to a different set of standards than the kind of people I was writing about in my book so that's comp that's the complicated middle ground yeah uh, then at the other end you've got you know politicians who've committed sexual assault who say oh, I'm being cancelled so it's a it's a it's a maddening uh phrase well no you have Josh Hawley who who encourages an inser- encourages and incites an insurrection on the yeah. United States government loses his book deal over it and calls it cancel culture uh yeah. you know that's not what what cancel culture is yeah and it's so and it's a problem for so many reasons uh obviously he is politicizing it and Cancel culture and the culture wars are going to be a big part of 2024, and you know they're all laying the ground for that. Um, then, but then you know the problem is also that you have people on the left who look at that happening and say, you know, and say, see, there's no such thing as cancel culture. And then people like Lindsay Stone slip through the cracks when you say right. there's no such thing as cancel culture; it's just accountability culture. Then. The private individuals who don't deserve it, who are I probably no, no, I was about to say they're the bulk of cancel people, but but they're not. But there's a lot of them. And you know, what about them? So the whole the whole thing becomes a mess. How much do you think is rooted? I was thinking about this. It's it's almost like it's rooted in kind of impotence or the the deadlock of our culture. So like um if 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 Josh Hawley was held legally accountable for what he did. Or if Josh Hawley was held politically accountable by his own party for what he did, I imagine there would be less pressure on his book publisher to cancel his book, right? So sometimes I feel like the the, the sort of vehemence and anger and destructiveness of our online culture is really rooted in the fact that our politicians and our other cultural and business institutions are not operating as efficiently or as justly as they should. And so people feel like that is the only lever of power that they have Mm. in a dysfunctional, uh, unfair world. So they're like, this is where I can affect change. It's it's a very inefficient, uh, cruel way to enact change, but it it it's the only lever that feels like it's working. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's true. And and I I started to hear that um, my book got a, only a very small amount of pushback, but when it came out, thank goodness, but that was the pushback. Um, public shaming is one of the few weapons of the marginalised, and so if you're attacking public shaming, then you're attacking marginalised people. Um, and it's a, it's a valid thing to say. Um, in my case, I just don't. I think I was very careful at drawing distinctions, so sure. I don't think I don't think it was it was a fair criticism of my book. I don't think, but um, and I but I'd say it's valid. It's a valid point. 
Yeah, it's like if you want to reduce cancel culture, just start policing your side of the street, you know, and, and then I think some of that goes away. Yeah, yeah, um, which maybe is starting to happen in terms like the Emma Sali thing. I was very encouraged by that. I mean, she had, I think, very severe consequences. I think she was fired from her job and then she moved to a different part of America. But certainly on social media, the way it was being lashed around felt felt quite different to to uh, previous similar shamings. I, I know you're you you spend a fair amount of time on Twitter, not too much. Have you been as sort of dismayed slash like uh, cautioned by what it feels like Twitter has done to the brains of a lot of the media class? Like, if to me, it feels like it's consumed their life and broken their ability to think compassionately, uh, long-term, uh, rationally, it, it doesn't feel healthy or happy. Well, yeah. I, I mean, Twitter's the worst thing in the world. It's the world's, <laughs> worst, it's the world's worst information swapping service. It fries our brains because it's, because it's all created by libertarians. Episode five of Things Fell Apart looks at uh, how libertarians created the internet and how we're all living in a libertarian utopia that's driving us all insane. Uh, so, um, and yes, yeah, so that's where it all started <laughs> with the fact that um, people who were ideologically enamoured with the idea of unencumbered free speech built the internet and controlled the internet uh, and effectively still does, although things, I think, are changing and have been changing for the last three or four years. It's interesting that Peter Thiel, um, who obviously you wrote so well about in Conspiracy, um, he said, you know, when, when he was starting out, uh, Silicon Valley was libertarian, and the reason why he left and moved to Los Angeles a couple of years ago was because it no longer felt libertarian. Uh, so yeah, that's so that's a big part of it. That this is what happens when you allow libertarians to to run the party. Yeah, isn't that the the Aaron Sorkin joke that that these social networks were designed by by fundamentally asocial or uh, no. uh, unsocial people who don't actually understand human dynamics and how relationships work and yeah. aren't capable of that empathy. That's so true. And that's the world that we all live in. Those are our robber barons, right? Those are our Rockefellers. And, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, right? And, and, the, and the consequence of it, it's to, do with the, it's to do with the algorithms, but it's to do with, to do with so much else, is, yeah, we, we retreat to our corners. Um, my friend Adam Curtis said something really interesting to me about this. He said, the internet is designed by engineers. And what do engineers like more than anything else, stability. So that's why when a destabilizing force enters our world, like somebody who said something that we don't agree with, it's like the machine spits them out to maintain stability. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very strange, uh, the world that we're living in, and then that people could sort of see these things happening and go, oh, it'll work itself out. <laughs> yeah well that's certainly what people always felt about public shaming I remember when I was writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed with Justine Sacco I remember asking Sam Biddle from Gorka 
like how it felt to have started the onslaught against her. And he said it felt delicious. And then he said, but I'm sure she's fine now. Right. Uh, so, which I felt like, for me, it felt like a moment of cognitive dissonance. He didn't want to, he just didn't want to think about maybe that she wasn't fine. No, I think, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, Zuckerberg's statement uh, after the 2020 election in 2016 too. He's like, there's no way Facebook influenced the election, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like, because well, to think that it had an impact would then obligate him to do something. And so if he chooses to deny that it had anything to do with it, he can keep doing what he's doing. Yeah, also, and also, I think it's that, but and also it's this ideological vision that they have about tech. The, 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 uh, just the machines must be allowed to, to do whatever the machines are capable of doing. It's, it's fundamentally amoral. Yes, yes. That Don't is the libertarian ethos. Yeah, it is. And, you know, on a personal level, when I meet libertarians, they're all, they're really nice. And, you know, I, I, I live upstate. There's a bunch of libertarians close to where, you know, around where I live. And they're really nice people, but I just don't think it's a really good idea to to live under a forced <laughs> libertarian system, which is basically what the internet has, has been for most of its life. Well, I think to, to go to your work on psychopaths, it doesn't, it doesn't work when those people enter the mix. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happens with psychopaths, um, and I guess happens with every extreme personality type, I guess, is if you, if you have a psychopath at the top of a corporation, in the psychopath test, I talk about how you're four times more likely to have a psychopath at the top of the, than, than at the bottom. Um, it, it, it trickles down. Everybody behaves a little bit more psychopathically to, sure. so we all become a bit more psychopathic. And I've, I've noticed that in, in, in very small ways, just in offices. Thank God I've never had to work in, in offices, but when I've worked for companies and so on, I've, you know, I've noticed that kind of thing happening. Everybody getting a little bit harder and more willing to be manipulative if the wrong person is in charge. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people would recognize that. Well, it's very primal. It's like, oh, if everyone in the tribe is behaving, we can pretend to be all uh, well-behaved monkeys. But then, if uh, if the dial gets turned a little bit, we can we can go uh, we can go primal real quickly. Right. Oh, it's funny. I've got more. I've got a more humanistic explanation. You could okay. be absolute. You could be absolutely right. But I, I my my kind my kind-hearted thing is maybe you know people are being like forced against their will to behave in a more exploitative way and then they feel terrible about it afterwards that's right <laughs> that could be true i think it works yeah maybe i guess i guess it's i guess it's all sorts different different strokes for different folks offices will be will have both types in them the Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening. 
But depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24 seven, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10 when you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash. That's code Daily Stoic. Order using DoorDash today for eligible users only. Terms apply. Well, I, so I was thinking about the culture wars. That I think the other thing where I think culture wars and some of the public shaming stuff uh, intersects, I, it's kind of like who cares? Like why are pe- why do people care so much? I think well, to me yeah. that you know what I'm like. I get why why it's a problem. What I'm saying is the individual thing. You know, it's like. It's like people like, can you believe they did X? And um, it's like, no, I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't, it's not, you know what I mean? It feels like the antidote to a lot of the intensity of where we are is, is the more stoic approach of like, I'm going to focus on my own stuff. Well, that was my starting point for things fell apart over the pandemic, but before the pandemic too, like most people, I'd wa- I was watching friends go insane online um, and caring. And it wasn't so much like what the particular culture war was, but it was the intensity with which they were fighting it. Yeah. Seemed so startling to me. And I wanted to try and figure out why. And that's, that's why I made the show. Uh, be- yeah, I-, I think people were, and I don't, people are noticing it more and more. People are just, changing very quickly yeah Mm. why what is it like what what why are we so wrapped up is it that is it so one theory i have is that okay 15 20 years ago we would have all been watching friends together or like uh the tv show you know like that 60 million people would watch an episode of seinfeld as as culture fractured there stopped being any large things to be a part of so these events these culture war events 
are kind of the only, other than sports, they're the only mass yeah. culture left. Yeah, let me think about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, once in a while, everybody falls in love with a particular meme. Yeah. Or, you know, Charlie bit my finger. So those yeah. kind of things, uh, those kind of things do still happen. Yeah, I was thinking when, when you were describing everybody sitting down together to watch Friends, I was imagining a room full of people watching Friends. And yeah. I think if you're if you're the kind of person who can be easily wounded, uh, maybe you're maybe you 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 score high on narcissism, uh, but you're very easily wounded. If you're in a room with someone and and a fight breaks out, people can quite easily navigate it. Yeah, and you know, no one to stop, no one to pull back. They're watching, and so. You know, the most terrible thing that can happen to a narcissist, for instance, is they feel so wounded, it like becomes a permanent war for the rest of their lives. That's more likely to happen, I'd say, on social media because because there isn't their personal human connection. Speaking of which, there's one episode of Things Fell Apart where I tell the story of this man called Steve Peters. And I, I, I won't tell the whole story here, but it's incredibly moving. It's probably the most moving story I've, I've told. And uh, and it's a story about connection. It's a story about warring factions in a culture war. What is the, what's the culture war issue? I, I don't know oh, that name. Uh, it was uh, AIDS in the 80s oh. and um, and the evangelical right uh, response to, to the AIDS crisis. Um, and the story was just, it's so moving. Uh, I, um I would encourage people to listen to it. It's episode three of Things Fell Apart. But I had so many messages that day and since from people saying I was listening to that show while I was driving up the motorway and tears were rolling down my face. And the show is all about connection. And it made me think that we're dying. We're we're so battle-weary. We're dying for connection now. Yeah, no, that's right. And and maybe that's why we end up caring about things that we don't care about, we wouldn't otherwise care about, because it puts us in a community. So yeah. uh, suddenly we're very concerned about voter fraud, not because it exists or we were a political person beforehand, but now we're in a tight-knit unit of people fighting that part of the culture war, and that's very uh, edifying. Right. I would say as a Brit, um, when I moved to America, I've been living in America for like 10 years now, and a few things like really surprised me about America. Uh, it feels very much my home now, more, yeah. you know, I, I, it's, it's just, it's my home. But one thing I'd say about Britain is that other than some very egregious gerrymandering in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, uh, in Britain, voter fraud really hasn't been, you know, the, not sorry, voter fraud, the, the idea of sort of voter suppression, yeah. people's names just mysteriously vanishing from roles, all, all of that stuff um, does, just doesn't exist. So democracy, obviously Britain's democracy isn't doing very well either. Yeah. Well, the institution, certainly when I first moved to America, democracy felt surprisingly fragile in America compared to Britain. So I'm, I think I feel part of that group. Like I'm really worried. Like the thing that worries me right now more than anything 
is this whole uh, republic, you know, putting these republican legislatures in place. Sure. And, um, yeah. No, and to me that the issue there isn't the voter suppression or the voter counting. It's it's what happens after, right? It's the it's the election certifications that's the issue. I wonder right. too if the system, the parliamentary the parliamentarian system, uh, encourages collaboration, whereas the American system is winner take all effectively. And it's I wonder funny. if that creates a kind of uh, war mentality. Yeah. I've been watching Prime Minister's questions late, lately. Uh, have you ever watched it? No. Oh, every Wednesday. You've got to see it. It's like you're watching something from another planet. Uh, it's uh, Prime Minister's questions. I grew up with it in Britain. It's half an hour. The Prime Minister, who obviously is Boris Johnson, is going through it, the rockiest patch of his, of his yeah. um, Prime Ministerialship because, you know, when everybody else was being forced to stay at home, they were just having constant parties. Uh, and now it's, now it's all coming home to roost. Um, so I've been watching Prime Minister's yeah. Sessions lately for that reason. And and it's it's the, it's an unbelievable bear pit. It's all it's the most adversarial thing you can possibly imagine. It's it's performatively adversarial. Booze, cat calls. It's like watching something from the nineteenth century. You have to see it. It's like nothing in American politics. Um, but it's funny, like so when you look at that, you just think Britain has the most adversarial system yeah. possible. Now I'm beginning to speak beyond my level of expertise here, but because I've never really studied British politics, but I believe, yeah, there's there's there are many cross-party um, alliances in terms of trying to get laws changed and things. I, I I believe so. So there is real problems with adversarial, and I'm against pretty much any adversarial situation. Um, but yeah, but you could be right. You could be right. I think there's more consensus politics across the parties in Britain. Well, just the idea America. of a coalition government does not exist in America. That's like a phrase that doesn't make any sense in American politics. Yeah. But it, it it does make sense in Israel or Britain. That, that's it's possible yeah. in your system. Yeah, I don't. I, I was. Uh, I don't think it went very well uh, <laughs> when we when we had our most recent one. But but we did have one. Um. Yeah, I, I um, there's a th- when Peter Thiel spoke at the Republican convention uh, in 2016, which is I, I think he would pro- likely admit was a mistake. He did say something that was interesting that I think a- about a lot, and I don't know if I'm I'm you know changing the meaning of what he said, but he said something. He was like transgender bathrooms. Who cares, right? And uh, I th- I think uh, what I took from that is if people want transgender bathrooms. They can have transgender bathrooms. What do I care? It doesn't. It doesn't negatively affect me, right? So, so, and and to me, that's a, I think something that we struggle with that would solve some of the publicly shaming stuff, some of the culture war issues, is is that response. Who cares, right? Like if we cared a little bit less, we could give people a bit more grace. And also, the the best thing about social media was it well one of the best things was that it gave a voice when i started out on social media and i was pretty early on twitter i was like 2008 i think or 2009 and it was a very different place when did you join twitter were you i was at south by southwest in 2007 when it launched okay and i thought it was the dumbest idea in the world and it wouldn't possibly work so what do i know well i had a couple of friends who said to me you've You've got to join Twitter. It's like nothing else on the internet. There's no fighting. 
everybody's uh, everybody's supportive of each other. It's a place where you can just be yourself and talk, yeah. just talk openly. Um, so that's kind of what it what it was at the beginning. Um, yeah. And then it, I can't remember, I, I was going somewhere with that in response to your question, but I've forgotten what your question We're talking was. About who cares? Like, Oh, who cares? Yeah. So one of the things I loved so much about it back then was that it was giving a voice to everyone. Uh, yeah. It was giving a voice. And I was particularly struck as somebody who, you know, has various anxiety situations in my life. I was particularly struck by people who were so anxious that, you know, if they had to go to a party, they would be mute. They'd have selective mutism. Um, And those people were being, like, really eloquent on social media. And I'd meet people who were so socially awkward in real life, but but they shone on social media. So I thought, you know, Twitter's... So the best thing about social media is that it's giving a voice to voiceless people. And now I think... Maybe sometimes, you know, just because we, everybody now has a voice doesn't necessarily mean that you need to, like, use it all the fucking time. Like, because look what happens when everybody's screaming all the time. Look what's happened. We, I've always found it illustrative, like, what the empty box on Facebook or Twitter says, right? It's like, what are you thinking? Or, like, what do you have to say, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's almost like this this machine that's prompting you to have opinions about stuff that if you didn't, if you weren't prompted, you would say nothing and probably be happier and kinder. One of my favorite Marcus Realist quotes, he says, always remember that you have the power to have no opinion. But I think we've kind of relinquished that power to the algorithm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've often felt that, that the tyranny of needing to have an opinion about everything, the tyranny of certainty. Uh, yeah, I, I embrace uncertainty. Embrace or it. silence. Uh, yeah. You know, the funniest thing, like prisons, like I've done quite, I've been to kind of a lot of prisons and, and I've done a lot of stories in that world. And obviously, what, and you know this from every prison drama, like the way you're judged when you're a new inmate is like everybody yells at you and how well or badly you respond to being yelled at is, you know, is basically defines how well you'll do in prison. But I think that's like such a weird way to judge someone. <laughs> it's so arbitrary. We, uh, like I respond very badly to being shouted at, like very badly. I go into my shell. But that doesn't mean I'm like worse than, than someone who responds well to it. Can't, can't we come up with a new way of judging people? Uh, like, through, I don't know, through like jigsaws or something. <laughs> Wordle. I would say generally our social dynamics should not resemble the dynamics of a prison wherever possible. Uh, right. Yeah. I'm going to write about this. I'm about to do a Things Fell Apart, very small stage show in Britain. And what everything I just said to you, I've been meaning to write about. So I'm going to write about that. Well, I love that. Um, did I see uh, Tom Wolfe's A Man in Full behind you? Yeah, but actually I don't think I've ever read it. Uh, oh, man. I think it's right there on on the middle yeah. shelf. So it is. You know what? I never read it. I, I bought it in a in a frenzy of enthusiasm after enjoying the bonfire the vanities. Uh, I don't think I ever read it. It's an incredible book. It's a, it's a, it's actually about stoicism. Okay. In uh, what, and, well, what? and now actually now you have to read it because uh one of the characters gets wrongly imprisoned and right. uh and then that's where he's introduced uh, to stoicism. 
How interesting. Yeah, it's uh, a lovely book. Okay, yeah, I'll read it or, or listen to the audio book. People keep phoning me. Hang on a second. Uh, but I know we're finishing quite soon anyway. I hope nothing bad's happened. No, I don't think so. I haven't gotten any. My, my last question for you is just as, you, as you've thought about all this stuff, how, how has it changed your relationship or understanding of words like forgiveness or justice? Or how are those two things related to each other? Like when someone does something abhorrent or unethical, let's say in Jonah Berger's case or Jonah Lair's case, or, or does something uh, uh, stupid or mean or what? How do you think about accountability, justice, and then also forgiveness? Well, um, I suppose the you know I always you always think has has there been a victim? Like the thing that the oh, person sure. yeah did is there a victim? I mean, right. look, like so that's so I I feel much less. I feel less forgiving of somebody where, where there's an act, when there's a victim. Um, you know, on a personal level, and I'm, I'm, you know, not perfect. Like I bear grudges if people, you know, have behaved badly towards me. I'll, I'll bear grudges. So I'm no, you know, I haven't reached, you know, I haven't reached a level of self-actualization. Uh, but I, I, but broadly, I, I it, certainly in my work. And as much as I possibly can in my personal life, I, I and it gets easier as you get older. You are trying to be empathetic and kind and forgiving. I had a big fight with someone this morning. And I think the reason why the fight didn't escalate was because I remembered to, um, I remembered that, oh God, you know, this is like every, every self-help book, you know, but I remembered that, you know, they were coming from some difficult place and that's why they were yelling. And I sort of remembered that. And then it's easier to, to, to not retreat to your corner. And I think that, you know, I think that very much about, say, being publicly shamed and also the last days of August, uh, which was a podcast I made about the death of a porn star, August Ames. And when somebody spirals on Twitter very often there's something else going on in their life. And I think that's that's something that we forget when we pile in on someone. No, that th- those are two, I think those are two great and really practical questions. As you, something happens in the world and you're thinking about getting mad about it or frustrated about it or, you know, criticizing them for it. Number one is, was there actually a victim to what happened or were they just being stupid or weird or, you know, what, maybe just what they did was in bad taste, like the the middle finger at Arlington Cemetery. Um, and then two, you know, is that person dealing with a full deck of cards or is that person going through something or, or is that person, is it fun to be that person is the other question I like to ask. Right. Yeah. And um, what's the wider context? Have we, have we discovered everything about that person? I mean, you know, the number of Twitter shamings when three days later we found out that we got the information all wrong there's countless ones of those now so do we also have all the facts that's true and then uh, you know is it my place like who who appointed me the enforcer on this issue um Mm. yeah yeah i mean for me and that has to be a personal like i wouldn't want to impose that on people these all have to be things that people figure out for themselves yes like i don't want to create i was really reluctant and so you've been publicly shamed to like create a set of rules 
yes. for people. Like you, you get that sometimes in self-help books. So a few people say, why didn't you do that? But I don't want to be like a, like a lifestyle guru. I don't want to tell people, I don't want to like give people a set of rules to live. Uh, but I do think these are things that people should really figure out for themselves. No, I feel like So You've Been Publicly Shamed was so powerful because it was just a mirror. It didn't yeah. It didn't tell you what to do about it. It didn't explain how to solve the problem. It was just like, let me show you a problem and how much worse it is than you think it is. Yeah. And you may not have even realized this yet. Yeah. It was, when So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, it was so early in, in people's, the way people thought about the internet. People were saying to me, you, sh- you know, no, the internet's boring and it's not the real world and nobody what, nobody cares about the internet. You know, people were still thinking of the internet as, you know, a shopping bag, you know, to, or whatever. And, uh, yeah, and, and I don't think anybody thinks any of those things anymore. No, the internet is, is culture now. Yeah, it is the real world. The people, well, I can- the people who felt that back in 2015... 2014, whatever. It was really around 2012 that things began to change. You know, I hope there's some self-reflection from from people who thought that this would, you know, this was going to stay self-contained. I I hope so too. I think that's what the best books do is they just give you something to think about. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Ron, I have to go. I'm getting yes. all of these text messages, and I want to make sure everything's okay. I, I hope I, I hope nothing bad happened, and uh, I can't wait to listen to the new podcast. And uh, I've loved all the books, and thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And before I go, can I say so? The, so the new podcast is is well by January the twenty fifth. When's this going out? This will be after that, so it'll be out. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's just like every. It should be on pretty much every podcast platform. Things fell apart. I can't wait to listen. It, uh, all your stuff is amazing, so I'm very excited. Thanks, man. Hey, it's Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Daily Stoic Podcast. I just wanted to say we so appreciate it. We love serving you. It's an honor. Please spread the word. Tell people about it. And this isn't to sell anything. I just wanted to say thank you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most (laughs) people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Month. Exactly, exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black is beautiful.
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.